0: sleepcoolnow.com 1212.
1: This is hour number three, a special hour number three of the World According to Zig podcast for this April 16th, 2018. My name is John Ziegler. This is the show where you can still get the truth ...about all sorts of news in this world turned upside down. And it's also the uh, podcast of record, for sure, on the uh, so-called Penn State Joe Paterno-Jerry Sandusky scandal. I hope you checked out our number two this week, where we had a, a, a very extensive and exclusive interview with a guy who blows apart... ...a guy by the name of uh, Chad Buzzkirk, who uh, blows apart at least one, if not two, and maybe more of the uh, Penn State multi-million dollar settlements with an extraordinary story of being offered a bribe if they lied about interaction he witnessed with Jerry Sandusky and that uh, accuser named Glenn Neff, who Penn State paid $7 million to. So make sure you check out hour number two. In this hour number three, I'm going to do a special Ask Me Anything about the uh, scheduled Newsweek cover story on the Penn State quote-unquote scandal that was spiked at the last moment. You can check out what I posted of that story. I posted uh, the raw version, the last raw version that was vetted by multiple Newsweek editors, as well as I wrote a a very long uh, intro to it with a couple of uh, documents that were important to verifying what we were writing about. Uh, You can find all of that at framingpaterno.com. That's framingpaterno.com. Obviously, it was personally devastating for this to happen. Uh, I don't know if it's because I'm used to devastating events in my life or because I partially, if not mostly, expected this to occur. I, I never believed in my bones that it was ac- it was really going to happen. My brain did think it was going to happen just before it didn't, <laughs> uh, which is just so typical of the way it usually works. But my bones never really believed it. And I guess because of the combination of my uh, <laughs> my experiences and being used to horrible things happening, especially in this case, and the fact that I never 100% bought in that it was going to occur. I've I've been pleasantly surprised by how I have been able to rebound psychologically from this. I, I thought this might have a greater negative impact on my psychology than it actually has. In fact, I, I, at one point, I thought I may just Forget about just quitting the case. I may just quit everything. I may quit the podcast. I may quit running for media. I may just go into hiding. Um, but I, I I have not done that, and I've actually been in, in pretty decent spirits considering the dire nature of all of this. Uh, one thing that kind of helped was that um, Glenn Beck had me on to talk about it, uh, which from a, just from a purely morale standpoint. Uh, was nice because Glenn uh, clearly voiced on his show interviewing me, and you can check out that interview at uh, both framingpaternal.com dot com and FreeSpeechBroadcasting dot com. That he he understood my plight. You, you know, of course, I've been on with Glenn numerous times before. Uh, John Ziegler, I, I think he's fantastic. What a what an interesting mind he has. And to, to Glenn's credit, and and he doesn't. No one does, but you know, certainly he doesn't have the time to get into all the details. But I think he trusts me, and he, he also senses from our numerous interviews about this that uh, that I'm right, that this whole thing is not as we were told. Uh, Glenn has, has actually indicated that he is interested in the Blaze publishing the Newsweek piece. Uh, and I don't know whether or not that's going to happen. Um, I know that a couple of the Blaze editors... Have looked into this very carefully and have asked me a lot of questions, and I've responded, and they've asked for documents, and so they're taking it very seriously and spending a lot of time on it. And I, and I have no doubt that that they are, um, you know, being very upfront and truthful about their intent here. I just don't know if it's going to be a good fit or not. I just don't know, and I always presume something's going to go wrong in, in this case. Uh, I mention it really only just because from the standpoint of it was a little bit of a morale boost, um, even though I'm, I'm still pretty convinced that uh, something may end up going wrong with it. Uh, I'll keep you updated on that. But, um, but as part of the, the psychological need for at least a little bit of closure on what happened with Newsweek, I wanted to do a, a special hour of the podcast. Uh, allowing people to ask any question they want about the story that I released myself uh, at FramingPaterno.com. And, and obviously within under that umbrella, anything that had to has to do with the case itself. And I've never done this before, I don't think. Certainly not to this extent. And I got a lot of good responses via Twitter and Facebook. And I even offered people the opportunity to ask me questions via email, because I know in this case, especially, people don't always like to be public and, uh, and have their name attached to it, uh, which is part of the problem. <laughs> but, um, so I got a lot of good, good questions. Interestingly, almost no questions from anything close to a critic, uh, which is, is, is kind of interesting. And I think also illustrative of, of my plight. I mean, I get ripped to shreds all the time, but no one ever wants to take me on substantively, even people who pretend to know a lot about the case. And so I I just put out 20,000 words about the case, and I can't get one of my many critics, some of whom are very vocal when they know that I'm not going to be able to respond, (laughs) uh, to even ask me a question. I mean, I, I gave them multiple opportunities over several days. Hey, I promise you. Ask me a question. I'll answer it. And I think it's it's very, very interesting and quite uh, uh, significant that I didn't get one really negative question from a serious critic. Uh, and I was actually disappointed. But I, you know, but I, I, I do think that that's important because nobody else, nobody else who has discussed this case, nobody. Not the prosecutors, not the, the, the main reporter, Sarah Ganim, uh, not certainly not the accusers. Uh, nobody nobody in the media uh, will ever answer any questions about this. Forget about any question at, at all. I'll give you a perfect example. I, I, I forgot to mention this in, in the hour number one of the podcast, but I was scheduled to interview Armin Katayan of CBS because Armin Katayan put out a book, co-written a book about Tiger Woods. And the Thursday of the Masters, I was scheduled to interview him. I have emails documenting this. Could not be more clear. I have Armin Katayan scheduled to be interviewed by John Ziegler through the publicist about the Tiger Woods book. And by the way, I wanted to interview him about the Tiger Woods book because I thought there were some problems with his Tiger Woods book because I don't think he's a very good reporter. But it got canceled. Why did it get canceled? Because Armin Katayan recognized my name as someone who's been critical of his work on the Penn State case because he's completely blown the Penn State case. And I have an email from the publicist saying Armin has canceled because of your prior history with him. Which I thought was amazing that he admitted to it. But we, you know, because there was a time in the media not that long ago where that would have been something that would have been scandalous. What do you mean? You canceled an interview because somebody disagreed with you about another story? But now no one gives a shit because, you know, there's, uh, there's eight million uh, media outlets and, and, you know, bailing on an interview doesn't mean anything anymore. But he won't even let me ask him questions about Tiger Woods. <laughs> that's how insecure everybody on the other side of this whole thing is. They won't answer questions and they won't even ask questions. So with that, uh, here are the questions that I did get asked. And uh, these, these are all, every single one of them. I, I don't think I left anyone out, at least not knowingly. Uh, so we'll start with, why don't, and this is a good one, why don't Penn State fans and Joe Paterno fans want you to be right? Or at least why don't more? Penn State and Joe Paterno fans want me to be right that this whole thing did not happen, that Jerry Sandusky is innocent, and that the whole scandal was basically a perfect storm, not a conspiracy, uh, a perfect storm of messed up events that spiraled out of control. And this really is a key to understanding how this happened and why it can never be fixed. And that is because the Penn State community When this all went down and Joe Paterno got fired just days after Jerry Sandusky was arrested, after 61 years at the school, he almost built the school, literally, built the library, literally, built the stadium, literally. I mean, he put Penn State on the map. He was the community grandfather. This was an enormous trauma. And the community had only a couple of ways to deal with it. Now, they were being accused by the nation of having enabled and covered up for a pedophile. So, even defending Joe Paterno was took a little bit of courage at the time, and even now, because of the way the news media was creating the narrative. Well, when your community is, is being accused of that, what, what's the natural reaction going to be? You're going to prove to the world how against pedophilia you are. And you're going to do absolutely everything you can to condemn the person who's being accused. Now, some, not all by far, but some were willing to draw a line and say, wait a minute, Jerry's guilty as hell, but we're going to defend Joe Paterno because we know Joe Paterno is a great man. Frankly, not enough did that, but you're already fractured. Your community's already fractured there. I don't know what the percentage is, but, you know, it was nowhere near 90 or 100%. It was somewhere in the 50 or 60% of the Penn State community that was willing to say, wait a minute, let's give Joe the benefit of the doubt. But 100% in exchange for that immediately condemned Jerry Sandusky. And as part of this ordeal, the community went through enormous trauma. It was literally like multiple deaths in the family. And so, when you have dealt with that kind of grief over multiple years, you've been criticized for years and years as an institution in a community which allowed a pedophile to at least be enabled, if not covered up. The last thing in the world you want, even though it's counterintuitive, is to be told, oh, by the way, all that trauma you went through, it was meaningless, it was unnecessary. It was all based on bullshit. And it was all based upon, by the way, you guys being duped into throwing one of your best people under the bus. In fact, multiple best people under the bus, because there were three administrators who got uh, thrown under the bus as well. Fired and charged and largely persona non grata. So if you're... member of the Penn State community who's not a real truth crusader, you are actually the last person. Literally, it sounds totally counterintuitive. You're the last person who is going to want to believe that Jerry Sandusky was innocent because you've already gone through all the trauma. You've already endured all the damage. There's really very little chance of fixing it at this point. And all that's really going to happen is you're going to get accused of being a pedophile protector again. You already went through that once. Why would you do it again? The truth just isn't that important to most people. Plus, this case is icky in times and complicated, so no one wants to delve into it. So this, this is, frankly, within the Penn State community, this is one, as they said in Spinal Tap with the 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 drummer who died uh, suddenly. This is one of those crimes the authorities decided was better left unsolved, really. (laughs) I mean, that's really what this is. You know what? If this was an injustice, uh, so be it, but it's just not worth getting into at this point. We're exhausted. So that's a very long answer to an important question uh, and one that uh, has been incredibly frustrating to me uh, because it really does uh, seal the casket on this thing. And a large part of it is because of the Paterno family themselves, and specifically Scott Paterno, who I'll get into later on, who I blame for most, if not all, of this, either directly or indirectly. He was Joe Paterno's son and a lawyer and PR person during all this, and a guy who hates me <laughs> with a great passion, but probably not as much passion as I hate him. Well, I'm not sure. It's close. We, we despise each other. Um uh, and he, he he does not have reason to despise me, but I have very good reason to despise him. Next question, uh, clarify, is Sandusky a pedophile or not? Now, I'm not sure why someone would ask me this, because I've been pretty much on record at this point, uh, but I guess the reason why this question uh, is relevant is that I, at first, presume that he was. See, that's one of the major things people need to understand about Me in this case I went in presuming He was almost totally guilty Although there were were things about the original case I thought Really? That doesn't make a lot of sense Is it possible? Is that exaggerated? Yeah, I mean I was open to that But the idea of whether or not he's a pedophile I was 100% he has to be Then after I interviewed him in prison And learned a lot more about the case I thought Is it possible that he's like a chaste pedophile? Like, like, he's a pedophile. He's got inclinations of being a pedophile, but he never really acted on it. Because that actually is a thing. That is a thing where you, like, you fantasize about it, but you don't actually act on it. Because you have that inclination of of being sexually attracted to, in this case, young boys. But there was no evidence of any actual sex act. There was no pornography. There was, there was none, of, none of the stuff that should have been there. And so I thought, okay... Maybe that's a scenario that makes some sense. And then finally, after my second interview and further investigating the accusers and specifically the number one accuser, Aaron Fisher, and realizing, wait a minute, this whole thing is a fraud. And um, I mean, there were so many moments that made it just impossible for me to believe that uh, any of this is true. Because again, there should be O.J. Simpson evidence at this point. O.J. Simpson. And the pornography is a, is a huge deal. Huge deal, because if you're... First of all, every one of these guys has pornography. That's how most of them get caught. They also all confess, especially after they're convicted. All of them. Well, if, if you have this inclination, especially in this day and age with the Internet, then why would there not be any pornography? And I'm talking zero. Even though the prosecution lied... And still, to this day, trying to lie that there was pornography. There was no pornography. That's a flat-out lie. And so why would there be no pornography? And trust me, I know a n- way more than enough to know that Jerry Sandusky was not capable <laughs> of scrubbing his computer or his house or whatever from any form of pornography with no one knowing it. Because that would have... It's just, it's just not possible. It's just an, It's an, It's an absurdity on its face. Not to mention... I've been in the trenches with his wife, literally and figuratively, on the Today Show with Matt Lauer and numerous other situations. And I know there's no possible way that she has any doubt. So, you know, unlike most, you know, Larry Nasser's wife divorced him immediately, Weinstein's wife divorced him immediately. Dottie Sandusky, for some reason, <laughs> stuck with him 100% against way, way worse circumstances. Way worse, because she got blamed not just for her husband being a horrible pedophile, but for bringing down Penn State football, killing Joe Paterno, putting administrators in prison, costing the university of hundreds of millions of dollars, and she's still living right there. That you wouldn't. There's no chance zero that Dottie Sandusky could possibly do that if she even had the slightest inclination to believe that Jerry was guilty so he's he's not a pedophile and it's not it's not close someone asks a, a question though related to that isn't he then a moron <laughs> it, 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 why would he shower with kids after for instance the 1998 episode which was investigated by the DA and found to be unfounded Uh, and no charges were brought. Did he believe he was above the law? Uh, I have said numerous times, yes, he's a moron. He's adult. But it was actually a a horrible combination of a guy who was very well-known and respected in the community, effectively a celebrity. And let's face it, celebrities get treated differently, right? So no one wants to tell Jerry Sandusky, hey, Jerry, Stop being a moron. <laughs> Why are you showering with kids? And by the way, he wasn't doing this nearly as much as the public perception. That's the other thing that's important. There's to my to my knowledge, gun to my head. There's only two, maybe three situations that are known for sure that Jerry Sandusky ever showered with a boy. Uh, and this these were all in semi-public situations. Never happened at his house. In, in his mind. Anybody could see him at any time. He grew up in a wreck home where this was normal behavior. And this was also, I think, a different era. I think, you know, 2000, late 2000, which is when the Mike McQuery episode occurred, in my opinion. And I feel strongly about that. You know, this is way before Catholic Church scandal. It's before 9-11. It's Happy Valley. This is a different world. And so, yes, he's a moron. And yes, he was treated differently because... He's Jerry Sandusky. I don't think he believed he was above the law, but it also didn't happen nearly as much as public perception. What's the future of Sandusky's appeal? It's going nowhere in Pennsylvania because the entire state is literally and figuratively invested in his guilt. He will never get a new trial in Pennsylvania. He'll never even get a fair hearing. I mean, the state Supreme Court of Pennsylvania is pretty liberal and a little quirky, and so it's possible, maybe if it once, if and when it gets to the state supreme court, uh, someone might go, "Wait a minute, this is this doesn't make a lot of sense." But I doubt very seriously that uh, that they would ever order a new trial, um, because the entire political and media industrial complex of Pennsylvania would freak out. Oh my gosh, you're going to put these poor victims through all this trauma all over again. Well, they did get paid a lot of money for it. (laughs) I think they could probably show up for another half hour in a courtroom and answer a few questions, but that's not the way the media... see, the media has their narrative. They don't want anything to jeopardize it because they put all their chips onto it. Um, So I've always believed that the only hope here is a federal court. I think that a federal court if Jerry Sandusky lives long enough, and I doubt that's going to happen because this will take years. A federal judge... Purely on the constitutional grounds, forget about the evidence. The idea that Jerry Sandusky was put on trial seven months after an arrest that caused the firing and the death of Joe Paterno, which was facilitated by the governor of the state. You can't get more of a state actor than that. So the state, the, 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 the governor of the state, facilitated a media firestorm, fires the president, because he's on the board of trustees, fires the president and the most respected man in the state who then dies a couple months later and Sandusky has a trial within seven months with no continuances? That on its face is is absurd. He could be the most guilty man on the planet and a federal judge would go, what the fuck is that? That's not due process. Uh, so that's the only hope. Um, and then I don't think that'll happen. Um, someone asks, I've spoken to the exes of um, Aaron Fisher, ex-girlfriends of Aaron Fisher, victim number one. But I've, I tried the same with Mike McQuarrie and Brett swisher Houts, And that's interesting to me. I, I don't know how much this person knows, whether this is a, a random question or maybe they know a lot, but, um, the uh, the reality is, Brett Swisher House, by the way, is victim number four. Who, as it turned out, because the prosecution soured on Aaron Fisher because he kept changing his story and he couldn't testify, and he was a terrible witness, uh, they decided he was the star at trial. And so, those who know the case realize that he was a very very key accuser. And of course, Mike McQuery is the person who was the only direct witness in the case, the former graduate assistant coach who allegedly saw Jerry Sandusky uh, in some sort of a sexual act with a boy in a shower, Although he's never actually said what that sexual act was, and he only saw it for two or three seconds, and the boy said nothing ever happened. Uh, here's the answer to the question. Um, I, I've never spoken to any exes of Mike McQuarrie except <laughs> unless you count the woman who sent me his penis picture, <laughs> because Mike still sends penis pictures. Uh, which I think was a key part of this whole deal because I think he thought that's what investigators were coming to talk to him about in late 2010. So I, I, on my phone, I have Mike McQuarrie's penis picture. And frankly, if I had his penis, I'd be sending it to everybody too. I, I'd be sending it to everybody. I'd, I'd make it public. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, but the reality is that Mike McQuarrie is divorced now. Now, think about this, folks. I realize this doesn't prove anything in and of itself, but it's an interesting piece of the puzzle. Mike McQuery, if his story is true, right? In the last uh, 7 years, is now a massive celebrity and a hero who is now worth millions and millions of dollars because he won a judgment against Penn State. How many men do you know go from being married before that happens to divorced After it happens, now I realize your life can change, and when circumstances change, weird things can happen. But that to me is odd (laughs) that you get that your wife divorces you after all this happens. Even more interesting, while I've never spoken to his wife, his ex wife, I have reached out to her. She is part of one of the more bizarre episodes that no one has ever talked publicly about in this case. And I'll talk about it now, because I don't know when else I'll have a chance to do so. But this is how bizarre this case is. So they get divorced, and in the course of the divorce, they sell their house. Now, the person who bought the house was a Penn State person. I don't know enough to know whether or not she knew he was a Penn State person. It, there seems to be some inclination that she knew this. When the person goes into the house after purchasing it, there's a letter on the kitchen table. I believe it was the kitchen table, whatever it was. It was somewhere prominent enough to where the person found it. It was a handwritten letter from Mike McQuarrie's wife. I have a copy of a copy of it and it's very difficult to read and it's almost buzz. It, no, it's not almost bizarre. It's bizarre. The letter is bizarre, but there's one overriding message of the letter. In fact, it's in big letters at one point. Mike is a very good liar. That's the message of the letter. Now, best I can tell, it doesn't, directly relate to the case itself. Remember, she was not with Mike when this actually happened back in 2000, 2001. But it's exceedingly odd. And we almost put it in the Newsweek piece. But unfortunately, the chain of evidence of the letter is crappy. (laughs) I'm, I'm sure that the letter is real. I've heard about this from multiple sources. And again, I have a copy of the copy of the letter. But it's very obvious from the divorce and the letter that Mike McQuarrie's wife would not be a good character witness for Mike McQuarrie. Interestingly, as far as Brett House is concerned, one of the disappointments I've had in this, you know, I I have stopped pursuing anybody for years. I've made a rule that if someone comes to me I'll talk to them like the guy we spoke to in hour number two. he came to me all right, I'll talk to you but I'm no I'm st- I've done chasing white trash. I'm done And um, I had someone pretty close to Brett Houts who had pledged to me that they were going to try to help because they knew the girlfriend of Brett's dad. Well, again this is third hand or at least second hand but I feel confident enough to, to relay this on a podcast. I was told by this person who I consider to be very credible that Brett tried to rape his the girlfriend of his dad. That's the, that's the level of... And this is after his dad is dead, okay? I, this is the level of scum we're talking about here. And unfortunately, the person that I was in contact with was never able to get the dad's girlfriend to talk. But that that's what that's the kind of person we're dealing with here folks. And again that's not proof but I believe that to be true. Next question, uh will you release Sandusky's medical records? I can understand why people would, would want this because it they're referred to quite a bit in the newsweek piece that is at framingpaterno.com And you know, my inclination would be to do so, but what difference would it make? Zero. I mean anybody who doesn't want to believe them is never gonna believe what they say anyway. And uh and and to me, putting them at FramingPaterno.com, all it does is it diminishes see here's what i I'm I'm not always right in my strategy, but there's always a strategy, okay? <laughs> there's there's always a method to my madness. And when I published what we did for Newsweek, I did so with the the idea that uh, there's enough held back both in documentation as well as what's in the Newsweek piece itself, which I never really liked because frankly, I thought it was about a three or a four on a 10 scale of what we actually have. So I thought it, that in not releasing the medical records, I, it would help with the body of stuff that, I, that still exists if somebody down the road of a major media uh, uh, ilk... Is interested in doing this, whether that's an an, an article, a book, a documentary, what have you. So that is why I have not released the the medical records. I can assure you that everything we write about the medical records is 100% accurate. And anybody that looks at the medical records uh, remotely objectively knows two things. There's no freaking way that Jerry Sandusky was getting uh, erections capable of doing what he's accused of in the, in the two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine time period, where the the guy Sebastian Payton, who got twenty million dollars and was a key accuser at trial, trial uh, accuser number nine, uh, was alleging that he does that he did. There's just no possible. It's not possible. I don't think it's. I don't think it would be possible for a perfectly healthy sixty some year old guy. Because think about what you're being told happened. That a sixty some year old guy was brutally, anally raping a 16-year-old boy with no alcohol or drugs or payoffs to ply him and he's heterosexual. Not possible. I mean, any man will tell you it is not possible. It's just not possible. You would, you would need a, an erection of steel. And even then, you'd just have to chase the kid around. I mean, and, you, and, you, and it would be brutal. And there's no evidence of that at all. Um, So anyway, not for now. I will not be releasing the medical records. Uh, Let's see. Speaking of Sebastian Payton, has any uh, child sex abuse victim ever gotten more than $20 million like Sebastian Payton did? I do not know. I presume it's probably not close. I'm I'm presuming the answer is clearly no. Uh, I know enough about this to know that wrongful death. If you go to court and get a wrongful death judgment, in most cases, you're probably only going to get a few million dollars. A lot of it depends on pain and suffering and the age and how much money they were making. But getting, even in a wrongful death case, I'm sure there have been wrongful death cases for more than $20 But for child sex abuse, to get $20 million. And I'm not obviously diminishing child sex abuse, but that's just not the way the court system was intended to be set up. And this was not a judgment. This was a settlement, I am sure, is unprecedented. And the reason why it happened, and it's, you know, the media, if they ever were interested in getting off their asses and telling the real story here, having nothing to do with Jerry Sandusky's uh, guilt or innocence, what really happened here is his lawyers got access to the free documents, And Penn State cried uncle immediately. Well, why would they do that? Because they don't want the free documents out. Although we've got most of them. The reason why they don't want the free documents out is because it's clear free was a fraud. The free report saying that Penn State covered this up is a fraud. And they knew it was a fraud. Louis Free got paid for a conclusion. And he gave them to him. And the media Got out the pom poms and cheered like their boyfriend had just scored the winning touchdown in the homecoming game, because that's how much they were invested in this narrative. Why uh, won't the paternal family fight back? Uh, wow, boy, oh boy, um, this is this is a big one. Um, and you know they they had a lawsuit uh, that they abandoned, which I do not know the reason behind. Normally. <laughs> I could interpret it because I could presume that the person in charge had a clue and was thinking rationally. But since that's Scott Paterno, Joe Paterno's son and lawyer and PR person, when this all went down, I do not have any faith in that. This is really all about Scott Paterno. Uh, Scott Paterno is invested as deeply as anybody is personally in the mythological narrative because he got duped. He got duped before this ever went public that Jerry was guilty and he... Decided that the best strategy was to separate Joe Paterno, not just from Jerry Sandusky, but from the Penn State administrators, but mostly from Sandusky, and to do so both legally and publicly. And he did so by declaring Jerry Sandusky guilty three days after his arrest on November 8, 2011, on the front yard of Joe Paterno's house in front of cameras and an adoring crowd. Ironically enough, and so typical of this upside down case, Scott Paterno, a lifelong loser, a guy who lost a Republican race for Congress in a primary by like 30 points, maybe more, back when the Paterno name was gold because he's such a loser. The one time in his life, he got cheered. His name got cheered. Scott Paterno, Scott Paterno. It was the one moment in his life he got cheered, in all likelihood. I don't know, maybe maybe he got a walk in Little League one time and they someone applauded him. But other than that, this is definitely the only time he ever got his name chanted. And it was the dumbest thing he's ever done because it set off this entire domino effect. This entire domino effect starts right there because now the media knows Jerry is guilty because Joe Paterno was saying so. The board of trustees knows he's guilty. And that's why they can fire Joe the next night. And everything flows from that. And it's in the Paterno movie, the HBO Paterno movie. Uh, You know, Scott is still portrayed as a hero. He's invested in that false narrative that he was a hero that week when, in fact, he was the goat. And so that has really hindered the Paterno family and what they can do. They're they're handcuffed. Scott hits them to a narrative where all accusers are always telling the truth. Well, if all accusers are always telling the truth, then what do you do about the 1970s guys who implicate Joe Paterno? You're screwed. Scott has contradicted himself by saying publicly the 70s guys, correctly, are full of crap. But it's too late now. You already, you already said no, no, no. They're all credible. They're all telling the truth. Jerry's a monster. This was all horrible. We're defending all child sex abuse victims. Well, you're sunk because once Jerry's a monster, then Joe has to be responsible and has to be knowledgeable of it. So that's a big part of the reason why they won't fight back. And you know, Jay Paterno's a wuss. Jay Paterno, the, who coached with Jerry, knows. Jerry Sandusky's innocent. He won't say it. He's told me for all intents and purposes that he's innocent. They told me that way before I ever thought there was a chance that Jerry Sandusky was innocent, but he's delusional enough to think that he can still coach or be a broadcaster or something. He's on the board of trustees now. I, I thought there was a chance once he was on the board of trustees at Penn State that he would use that as an excuse to say, I've seen documents now and I realize this whole thing's a fraud, but he's a coward. So you basically have an asshole and a coward in charge. Of the paternal family response, Scott's the asshole, moron. Jay's actually a smart guy, but he's a complete puss. And um, and so that's you know that's why this can never be fixed. I mean, when when the Newsweek story came out, Scott had Scott had two reactions. This is what an asshole, what a moron Scott is. Scott got upset because. I had put out the Sue Paterno email saying that the Mike McQuarrie meeting only took three minutes and she was there that day, which blows apart Mike McQuarrie's entire story. I uh, I did that with Sue's email address. Well, I had to because that was the only way to verify it was her. And I so Scott doesn't come to me because he's like a lot of bullies. He's actually a wimp. He comes to people around me and says, that was wrong for John to do that. Why is he doing it? Can he stop it? Can he take, can he redact her email address? Keep in mind, Joe Paterno's phone number was in the phone book his whole life, all right? So this is, it's not like this is, you know, a catastrophe that her email address is on framingpaterno.com for authenticity purposes. But here's the problem. I can't remove it without Scott making a public statement acknowledging that the email is real because I know Scott. I know what an asshole he is. If I do that, then he's going to say, he's going to flip it on me and say, oh, that that email isn't real. So I, I email Scott. I say, Scott, I'm happy to redact the email address, but you got to give me a statement saying that the email is real. He doesn't respond until he then responds on Twitter calling me an asshole for putting... His mom's email address out there when he could have solved the whole problem could have been solved if he had just given me a statement acknowledging that the email was real. But he doesn't care. He, he just wants to lie about me. I I I mean, I rent space in his head. And thankfully, it doesn't cost very much because there's a lot of space in that head. There's a there's an ample amount of space in the head of Scott Paterno. And then he reads about the fake accuser, the purposely fake accuser in the Newsweek piece. And what's his reaction? Not, oh my gosh, this blows apart Andrew Shubin, the key lawyer in the case, which means that the 1971 guy is obviously lying. So now I got, I got and, and by the way, Sarah Gannam's also defrauded by that whole story. So I'm going to use this. No, no, no. He goes on Twitter and says that the fake accuser ought to be concerned about having, got, having received free therapy. From Penn State. He doesn't he doesn't care about the millions of dollars that he knows frauds got. He's worried about oh, that's just terrible that the fake accuser got free therapy from Penn State. This is this is how invested he is in a myth. And his hatred of me has overtaken him. It really has. Okay. Um, how do you explain Joe testifying that Mike told him of something sexual? This is a good question for people who know the case. Interestingly, the HBO Paterno movie inadvertently, I think, comes pretty close to explaining explaining this, only they do so in the opposite direction of the reality. The HBO Paterno movie strongly implies that Joe Paterno had forgotten that Jerry was a pedophile in old age, in senility. He had forgotten that Jerry was a pedophile, which is... That's a pretty big thing to forget. <laughs> I for- He forgot that he had been enabling or covering up for Jerry Sandusky, And that's why some of his actions don't make any sense. That's not what happened. However, I do think something somewhat similar, only opposite, did occur. And that is, I believe that Joe Paterno forgot that Jerry Sandusky was not a pedophile. That Mike McQuarrie had not told him anything. And that he got... Effectively manipulated ten years later as an 84-year-old man by numerous forces, maybe Mike McQueary, definitely Scott Paterno, definitely the Attorney General's Office, all feeding him the idea that that Mike had told him something sexual, and he trusted Mike. He was his assistant coach. He was his last conduit to the field during an era where he was basically being pushed out and had very little control over what was happening on the football field. That was Mike McQueary, and so Joe trusted him. He's also a Republican who believes in the prosecution, law and order. He didn't want to obstruct the investigation. Scott's whispering in his ear, we got to get out ahead of this. And all of this, I believe, effectively misrefreshes Joe Paterno's 10-year-old recollection about what Mike McQuery told him. Uh, what did I think of the Paterno movie on HBO? I, I pretty much just said that. I mean, it's a it's a myth. It's a farce. They got uh, an important fact at the very end wrong. They use the wrong they can't even get their myth right. They they use the 1976 accuser when it was actually the 1971 accuser. Their heroine is actually one one of the worst people in the case, Sarah Gannam. Now at CNN, she's responsible for most of this. They 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 portray Scott Paterno as a hero. They get that wrong. So so basically if you just turn everything upside down, you just turn it all upside down, it's a pretty good movie. <laughs> because because if if you realize that that the people wearing the white hats should actually be wearing the black hats and vice versa, it all makes sense, which is what you can do with almost every major media depiction of this case. The Happy Valley documentary, Aaron Fisher's book, all of that. Just flip it upside down and you have the truth. Uh, Was there a conspiracy here by former Governor Tom Corbett? No, I don't believe in conspiracies, but... I know that Graham Spanier, former president of Penn State, is on record and is on record in the Newsweek piece, uh, having said that he believes that part of this was a political vendetta against him, that that's what originally motivated the governor of Pennsylvania, a Republican, to take out Graham Spanier, a liberal who he had had a fight with over public education funding. And that sounds really vindictive, but knowing what I know about Corbett, I believe that. I don't... I think he thought that Sandusky is guilty, and so therefore he, you know, he, his people were doing the right thing. But if we can take out Grand Spanier with collateral damage, that's great too. And then, of course, he became invested in a whole bunch of things like everybody else did. I, it's bizarre that his attorney general's office was, and he was the former attorney general when the investigation began, was praising Joe Paterno when the whole thing started. And then three days later, he's recommending to the board of trustees that they fire Joe Paterno. Why did that happen? Well, because the media flipped the narrative. So, Corbett's not very bright, and, he, and he's also an asshole, and that's a bad combination. Uh, has a juror ever reached out to you? No, I did speak to one juror, uh, a female, and this was very interesting and telling because this person actually said, you know, I was shocked that I was allowed to be on the jury because my family is so close with Mike McQuery. I actually told... Uh, the judge during Guadir, that I didn't think I could be objective about Mike McQuarrie. I said, what? Well, I I, I looked into it from Jerry's standpoint, and Joe Mandola, his attorney, confirmed this and said that, yeah, Jerry wanted that person on the jury because he thought that because she had a Ken, Penn State connection that she would be fair to him. <laughs> she, Which, of course, was the exact opposite of reality. Penn Staters were the last people that were going to give him any kind of a fair trial, and they did not. Uh, will Tim Curley, he's one of the three administrators, former athletic director, <clears throat> who was the one actually spoke to Jerry Sandusky when this whole Mike McQuery thing actually happened, will he ever speak publicly or to the media? I do not believe that he will. Uh, he's in bad health. Uh, I know an amazing story of his incarceration for the misdemeanor to which he pled guilty, but I'm not allowed to talk about it. Um, but based upon that story, it is very clear to me that Tim Curley is shattered by this, uh, and understandably so from numerous reasons. His own reputation was destroyed. He's, he knows that Joe Paterno has been destroyed. I do not believe, and he has indicated to people around him who have spoken to me, that Tim Curley believes that Jerry Sandusky is guilty. In fact, I don't think any of the administrators believed that Jerry Sandusky is guilty. And I have very good reason uh, to believe that. Um, but I do not believe he'll ever speak about this. It's I th- it's one of the many tragedies in this whole case that I think Tim Curley is a shattered person, from what I can tell. I've never spoken to Tim, uh, but I have spoken to people close to him. Uh, why did Penn State protect the Second Mile charity? I hate this whole line of questioning because it presumes, one, things that are not true. There's a whole group of nut jobs who follow this case who think somehow the second mile charity was really to blame here and in reality they were no more to blame than penn state it's just that penn state was where the media coverage was and where the media and where the money was that's the media the media doesn't give a shit about second mile charity now especially that doesn't even exist there's no real money there and and, and, were there weird weird things that happened that could be construed into some sort of bizarre conspiracy, I guess, if you got a weird imagination and a lot of time on your hands. But the most obvious and simplest explanation is the reason why no one's ever gone after the Second Second Mount Charity is the Second Mount Charity did nothing wrong because they knew nothing, and they knew nothing because there was nothing to know. And by the way, they would have known a hell of a lot more than Penn State would have. And that's one of the most imbecilic elements of how the Penn State community has reacted to this. Somehow they think that these people think that it helps Joe Paterno or Penn State if the second mile charity gets the same treatment Penn State does. What? That's like like first grade logic. No, doesn't help at all. Even if it was true, it doesn't help. And the reality is everyone's innocent because nothing happened. Uh, Why haven't more former players defended Jerry Sandusky? Well, because no one has an incentive to. Uh, I've had numerous players defend him to me privately, but they'll never do it publicly, because it's toxic. You get attacked. No one wants to be John Ziggler. Let's be. Let's face it. No one wants to be roasted like John Ziggler. This case is as toxic as it gets. And uh, I've spoken to numerous, some fairly prominent, uh, former players of Jerry Sandusky who are. You know, they don't know all the case. They don't know the, all the details, but they're confident Jerry's innocent and it's all a crock, but they'll never say it publicly ever because people are cowards. People are selfish. The truth just doesn't matter to most people, not enough to take this kind of a risk, which is why this case is doomed to never be uh, fixed. It'll never be fixed. Uh, Have you ever thought about doing a documentary on this? Well, I did do a documentary called The Framing of Joe Paterno. It's on YouTube, back when I knew basically nothing about this case in 2012. And it deals mostly with just the Joe Paterno aspect of this. Interestingly, I had a conversation last night with another documentary filmmaker who contacted me wanting to do a documentary about this. A guy who seemed legitimate and was very knowledgeable and seemed to get it and seemed like a nice guy, a good guy. I don't know, you know, how well connected he is to get something like this done. But I was very conflicted because and I said to him, look, I'll tell you, this is the greatest story that's never been told. And it's not close. And we have it 95 percent nailed. But I'm also going to tell you, you're you probably shouldn't do this documentary. I'll help you if you if you decide to do it. But you shouldn't do it because this is this is not going anywhere good. This is going to only lead to heartache. Because no one's going to have the guts to do this right. And the only way it's going to matter is if it's done right. It's the ultimate catch-22. And the only way it gets done right is if some celebrity decides to do it. But again, another catch-22. No celebrity is going to put their their celebrity status on the line for this story. It's never, ever going to happen. It's the ultimate catch-22. So I spent about an hour and a half on the phone with a guy last night. I don't know what he's going to do. Said he'll get back to me and what he decides, but uh, you know, my guess is like most people, he'll decide. You know what? Uh, again, this is one of those crimes better left unsolved. Really, um, let's see. Um, why didn't Jerry and Dottie make sure that Joe Amendola, the defense attorney, used the medical records? Well, I've been seeing a lot of confusion about this. Here's what happened with the medical records. In the middle of the shitstorm, Dottie Sandusky goes down to the doctor, gets the medical records. She brings them to Joe Mandolin. She thinks they're relevant because she knows that Jerry had been diagnosed with very low testosterone recently. But Dottie's not an expert. She's the least, the furthest thing from an expert you could possibly have. She's an old lady who has been, as she said to me directly, John, I've only been with one man in my whole life. She has... Literally nothing to compare this to. She didn't even have children. So, I mean, she has literally nothing to compare Jerry's sexual function, Jerry's genitalia. She's got nothing to compare it to. And she gives Joe Mandola this boatload of of documents. Doesn't point out exactly what the most important parts are. My guess is that while being overwhelmed, Joe looks at the testosterone level, thinks, okay, well, that's weird, but it's not definitive, doesn't even go and read all the rest of the medical records, and it gets lost in the, in the avalanche. And, you know, frankly, to me, the most important part of the medical records is not just that anybody with a brain looks at this and goes, wait a minute, there's no way he's able to do most of what he's being accused of from an erection standpoint, but it's also the fact that he has basically no testicles. And yet not one of the 36 guys, which we now know because we have all the documents, not one of the 36 guys who got paid by Penn State, $118 million, says anything about that. That's not possible. It's not possible. Someone would say something about it. And the fact that Amendola, it's the only subject Amendola will not answer questions about with me, indicates to me he knows he fucked up. And um it's a perfect storm. Jerry and Dottie are very religious people. They're not sexual people, they're older. I'm pretty sure both of them have only been with each other. I'm convinced Jerry Sandusky is an asexual person as it is. I am told that with regard to his testicles, his current lawyer, Al Lindsay, basically had to drag it out of him that he has basically no testicles. Uh I mean this is this is not something that. He's normally comfortable talking about or even thinks about, and so it fell through the cracks. Um, the Ira Lubert interview, which was on the podcast, uh, he's the uh, Ben State Board Trustees member who was in charge of the settlement. Settlements is difficult to hear. Can we get a transcript? No. <laughs> it's it's I can hear it fine. Uh, I'm not gonna bother getting given a transcript. I mean here the reality is, here, let me just I'll give you a transcript right now. I gave it to you on the pro, on the podcast. He says, that uh, the accusers, many of them, are on the gravy train or exaggerating. He calls Joe Paterno and the three administrators great men who only made an error in judgment, and he has no explanation for why he thinks Jerry Sandusky is guilty other than the fact that he doesn't think the administrators would have pled guilty or been convicted of misdemeanors if he was innocent, which is asinine. So that's the essence of, of the Ira Lupert interview. Uh, are there other important free documents that are not in the Newsweek piece? Yes, um, there was one uh, almost mythical email that we were never able to get our hands on that we were told existed, but I have my doubts. It's almost It's almost like the P tape for Trump and Russia. Um, I I am I am highly skeptical that it actually exists. So I don't know that there are any. Free report bombshells uh, that uh, were not in the Newsweek piece. But what's in the Newsweek piece is pretty damn impressive stuff. I mean, front page, someone writes from the Free re- Free Group, but no evidence of this exclamation point uh, on, the, on the first paragraph, uh, not to mention numerous leaks between the Free Group and the prosecutor in the case, Frank Fina. That's in a normal case, that would be bombshell enough. Do you know anything else about uh, the 1976 accuser Michael Quinn? To discredit his story, you know we don't focus very much on him in the um, in the Newsweek piece, mainly because his own lawyer blows him up. I mean, to me, what else do you need? His lawyer, the his lawyer is Michael Bonnie. Michael Bonney is the partner of his lawyer. They're in the same law firm. Michael Bonnie was on record went back when he never thought there was any chance that the specifics of, this, of, for instance, Michael Quinn's story would ever become public. He's on record saying he doesn't think there's any evidence that Joe Paterno was ever told about any of this. And he's not a Joe Paterno fan. Well, when you got the guy's old lawyer discrediting his story, what else do you need? To me, that's game, set, match. Plus, his story is ridiculous to begin with. Uh, have you had any uh, interaction with Ralph Cipriano, your co-writer on the Newsweek story? Is he still trying to get It published. Has there been any interest? Uh, I have not had, uh, well, I had a little interaction with Ralph after he tried to sabotage me with uh, uh, (laughs) Mediite, which was not appreciated. But I have not spoken to him. The last time I spoke to him, he said, yeah, I'll do your podcast. Uh, If I I can't do it, I'll let you know. (laughs) That was the last time I spoke to him. Mm -hmm. And I was not surprised when uh, that never actually happened because Ralph is a bit of a puss. Um, and I'm not surprised he cracked, and he's basically doing Newsweek's bidding. and hopefully hopefully he got paid. I know that's what he wanted to do. Interestingly, and, and I don't, you know, I don't whine about this stuff, but it, it now appears to me that Newsweek is not as had been scheduled, uh, has not paid me my expenses. So me publishing what I did at framingpaterno.com cost me at least 600 bucks. It was in the computer system uh, for me to be paid this week. And there's no evidence I got paid my expenses. So I hope you enjoy the framing paternal piece because it cost me 600 bucks. Um, but as I've already mentioned, there is only interest from the one outlet. And I don't know whether or not that's actually going to happen. Uh, I hope it does, but I'm prepared for it not to because they're, the mainstream media just, Does not want this. They're just, this is, they already think they know the answer to the end of the mathematical equation. So why force them to do math? That's really the best way I can describe this. I'm asking them to do a very complicated mathematical equation for a series of numbers that they think they already know the answer to. So why bother? They're busy. This is not a subject that interests them anymore. It's not important. It's too risky. It's too heavy a lift. There's, they're not going to do it. That's why the Newsweek thing was unique when we had Bob Rowe until he got fired because he got it. He was the editor, and then he got fired, and I knew we were done. Uh, is the Pennsylvania local media more open to this story than the national media? No. <laughs> they are way more invested because they uh, they they will get destroyed Uh, Because that's where, you know, the accusers are and uh, the Penn State fans don't want to go through this again. I mean, I know uh, there's one local TV reporter who's been very prominent on this case, Gary Sinderson, who I've had numerous contacts with, met with him numerous times. Uh, He he knows that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. 100% knows it. Will never, ever, 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 ever even remotely entertain anything that goes in that direction because he's an older guy. He knows this, that would be the last chapter. No, no one wants to lose the gig. There are local TV news situations for older white men, not very plentiful. Uh, so that would, he, he's not going to blow it all on this. Truth. Just not that important. Media does not care. Truth is irrelevant. It's what will keep your gig. And if something is a risk to the gig, no one will do it. It doesn't matter how true or how important the truth is. It's about keeping your own self-interest, keeping your gig. That's all that matters. Trust me. Uh, what's next for the fake accuser? I uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, we did not reveal his name, uh, partially because I'm trying to hold that back in case somebody is actually interested in it. Uh, he... Interestingly, you know, he um, has been very naive about what's possible in all this. And after the Newsweek thing died, he was still incredibly, absurdly optimistic about what we could do. And I was still getting an insane number of messages from him. I've not heard from him in like a week, which is highly unusual. Uh, I don't know whether or not he's suddenly realizing that three and a half years of work on his part is is effectively going to be for naught and that we're going to lose this. Um, I'm I'm very conflicted because I don't want to mislead him. Uh, but I also don't want to, um, you know, totally kill off uh, his efforts or his hope, um, you know, even if there's a glimmer of hope, which I don't even know if there is. But so I'm, I'm very conflicted about how to deal with that, deal with that, Um But I I don't know what his plan is. You know, it's important that people understand that Newsweek effectively uh, encouraged us to end the sting operation. And as part of the ending of that sting operation, remarkably, and this is maybe the most amazing part of the whole fake accuser story, is that because he was outside the statute of limitations, his lawyer, Andrew Shubin, got him in touch with. This was totally on his own, proactive, the lawyer's part got him in touch with the attorney general's office for the purpose of filing a criminal complaint against Jerry Sandusky, because he was not outside the statute of limitations from a criminal standpoint, only from a civil perspective. That's amazing. And frankly, maybe the most scandalous part of the whole story. But we did not pursue that, or the fake accuser did not pursue that, because he... um, one, the Newsweek story we thought was going to come out, and two, we didn't want to do anything illegal. He didn't want to file a false report. And so while they, the attorney general's office contacted him on numer- numerous occasions via email, this is all in emails and letters. This is all proven beyond any shadow of a doubt. The, uh, the reality is that um, that was not pursued and it will not be pursued. So I don't know if there is another chapter in that or not. Uh, it's a hell of a story if anyone wants to tell it, but I, I don't think we're going to tell it Unless we have the opportunity, it isn't. I will tell you this: we have done an interview with the fake accuser on this podcast, and it's extraordinary, and it includes incontrovertible proof of what we're talking about. I could release that now if we wanted to, but I'm I'm not going to. But it is in a rational world, it is beyond bombshell stuff. You're just gonna have to trust me on that for now. Uh, Have you considered leaking the documents you have to a major media outlet? (laughs) Why? Um, Look, if someone proved to me that they were serious, I would. But why would I do that? I mean, I've given a lot of the documents to the Blaze. I've already mentioned that. Uh, Not all of them, but uh, the key ones. Um, But a major media outlet is is not going to be trusted with this. They're not going to do anything with this. They would... Butcher it anyway. We already. By the way, I'm pretty sure that the Washington Post was already leaked a lot of the same stuff, but the Washington Post reporter Will Hobson had no interest because he didn't want that part of the narrative. He wanted to do a story about Christmas, but just focus on the reindeer and the elves, and not on Santa Claus. So, and I, you know, I I probably spoke to Will Hobson for dozens of hours met with him, texted him hundreds of times, beat the living crap out of him, uh, by the way. And uh, and that didn't work. And that's the Washington Post. So I don't know what good that would do elsewhere. Uh, will an accuser eventually turn and admit this was all fraud? No. And it's not just because they uh, they obviously are literally invested because many of them have millions of dollars here. That's number reason number one. There's always the theoretical possibility that once the money runs out and they feel like they have nothing left to lose, that they would do it, but they would still fear some sort of repercussion. But even if they overcame that, here's the biggest problem. I, I talked to someone about this just the other day, and they, they said, oh, shit, you're right. This is not a situation where the 36 guys who scammed Penn State were – randomly selected out of the phone book, all right? If they were, if by if by chance, like let's, let's say this happened somehow by lottery, right? These guys all did win the lottery, but let's pretend that the 36 were chosen at random. I would say, you know what? Somebody, maybe a couple are going to eventually come clean, but these guys were self-selected. In other words, these were guys who were already part of a pool of scum that were willing to do this. They were already bad people from horrible backgrounds who feel entitled to this, not because Jerry abused them, but because they had a crappy life before this. So there's nobody within the 36 that's built that way. The one person who was built that way is victim number two, Alan Myers, the Mike McQuarrie kid, former Marine. It's amazing, by the way, how many of these guys were military guys, who, and I think I think that actually works against Jerry. You would think it works for him because you think military guy, they, you know, Marine takes an oath, they they believe in something. No, 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 no. They feel like they're owed. This is all part of I served my country. I'm a good guy. Uh, I, I'm owed this. I'm owed something for all of this. And uh, and part of it also is some of these guys went in the military because there was nothing else they could do. Um, but, but Alan Myers was the one guy. I, I did a video, which you can see on YouTube, pleading to Alan Myers, which I sent to his email and I know he got, uh, pleading with him several years ago to come forward. He was the one, he was the one that was going to come forward. If anyone was going to come forward, because he was the closest to Jerry, he was on the record the most saying this was all bull crap. Uh, he, he was the guy who was the Marine, uh, and, you know, drove, uh, Ten and a half hours to each way from his Marine barracks to go to Jerry's mother's funeral, and when he testified and uh, and it was clear he was gone forever, uh, that's when I knew this was over, and I think it's when Jerry knew it was over. I mean, because Jerry took the stand right afterwards and was asked one question: "Did you ever sexually abuse Alan Myers?" And with tears in his eyes and with righteous anger in his voice, he said, "Absolutely not." And I had, I had never heard of Jerry Sandusky being anything close to that before. And he's not a crier. Uh, but I think he knew at that point it was it was over for good. Because if Allen wasn't going to turn back, nobody was. Um, who could influence the case going forward? Well, at this point, it would be very difficult. Uh, you would need uh, Scott Paterno, uh, all the cowards on the Penn State Board of Trustees who know Jerry is innocent. And there are many. There are many past and current members of the Penn State Board of Trustees who know Jerry is innocent. Uh, I'll name them at some point. I'm not going to name them right now. But you, if, you, if you have a suspicion, if you know the story well enough and you have a suspicion that they're one of them, they're one of them. Uh, and, and I will have no problem saying Jay Paterno was one of them. Uh, but if they came forward along with um, Alan Myers uh, and Aaron Fisher – That would probably make a dent, but that's not going to happen in a million years. Uh, Who is to blame for all this? Oh my gosh, there's so many people to blame. I I hesitate to even start naming because I'm going to leave people out, and I I, so I'm I'm going to I'm going to ask for some leeway here and just giving you a, a couple of people who are underrated. Uh, and, and I'll, pick, I'll probably answer that question more extensively at a later date. Uh, I, I've been on record many times saying that Scott Paterno is the person that is the most to blame in comparison to how he is treated. Then he's you know treated as if somehow he's on the right side of this and he's a hero. Of the people who know at least most of the truth, Scott is the most to blame. But there are so many people to blame. I mean, Sarah Ganim is to blame. Aaron Fisher is to blame. Aaron Fisher's therapist is to blame. Aaron Fisher's mom is to blame. Jerry is to blame for being a moron. Dottie Sandusky is to blame for not realizing where this was going. She should have realized it much sooner. And she's made a ton of mistakes since then, not listening to me at key junctures when there was still an opportunity to save this. Um, I've made many mistakes, too. I'm partially to blame. Uh, but not nearly as much as these other people. Uh, I mean, there's there's Joe Amendola's to blame. His co-counsel, Carl Rominger lost his law- license and was convicted of fraud. Uh, he's to blame. The judge is to blame. The media is to blame. ESPN specifically is to blame. I mean, the blame just never ends uh, in this case. It was the perfect shitstorm. That's what it was. Everything could, could possibly go wrong. Uh, went wrong in this case, and there's no way to fix it now, Uh, largely because of the people I just mentioned. Uh, What would you do differently? Oh, my gosh. I would do so many things differently. Uh, As far as the Newsweek piece, which I'm not sure is that what you're referring to, but the Newsweek thing, and I stated this in the preamble for the Newsweek piece, the more I think about it, we really blundered where we we bit off more than we should have. Um, I think that if we had really just focused on the settlements, because we had those exclusive documents being leaked to us, and maybe even just specifically the 70s accusers, and just done a really extensive story on the 70s accusers, that would have been the way to go. Because I think that Newsweek would have probably gone for that. I think it might have opened up the conversation. I think even the Paterno family might have jumped on board with that because Scott is on record on that one. But... That's definitely a 2020 hindsight situation because we were told, go for the gusto. We were told, we're all in on this. Give us the whole narrative. And unfortunately, by the way, one of the problems with giving the whole narrative is the Newsweek story does not get all the details that we have. I know there are a lot of people, and I did get a question about this. Some have attacked your five week delay theory on Mike McQueery. How do you respond? I respond this way I'm not a moron, okay? This is not just my theory, and it's based on a lot more than what's in the Newsweek piece. The Newsweek piece, we had about eight or 900 words to spend on the five-week delay theory, that the real date was December 29, 2000 and not uh, February 9, 2001. And it's just hilarious to me that people go, well, wait a minute, there's a, a notation in the free report that indicates that the meeting, the key meeting that you're basing all this on actually happened in May of 2001. Do you not think I realize that that exists, people? Do you not think that I've asked Gary Schultz about that? Do you not think that Gary Schultz laughed at that notation in the free report, which doesn't even have an exact date on it? And why are people all of a sudden deciding that the free report... Is somehow the Bible, these are the same people who don't believe anything the free report says, but because they think it discredits me, they go, look, this, it was May, not February. No, it wasn't. I've spoken to Gary Schultz extensively about this. He doesn't even know that that May meeting even happened. He doesn't even know whether or not Dr. Dranop was in on that meeting. But he damn sure knows that May makes no sense because of the subject matter. The subject matter makes no sense in May because the investigation is already over in March. So, but unfortunately we don't have enough space to to get into every little nook and cranny. We have to build this fortress around every little fact that we come up with, every little theory that we come up with, because otherwise people go, well, what about this one stray thing? Doesn't this discredit you? No, it doesn't. I will debate anyone, anytime, any place on the five-week gap theory or six-week gap theory, of course, no one will do it because they can't, and it's based on a hell of a lot more than what's just in the newsweek piece. That was just the the Reader's Digest version. I've done numerous podcasts on this, two full podcasts on just this date issue, which you can find at framingpaternal.com. Um, but as far as in big the big picture, what would I have done differently? If I had one thing to do differently, it really all goes back to that first Today Show appearance. That was, that was my biggest mistake. I, um, and it all goes back to, to telling a, uh, a producer who's probably not even there anymore, uh, now that Matt Lauer's gone, telling a female producer that I was going to use Alan Meyer's name on the air when she asked me. I should never have copped to that because I thought I, I knew I had every moral right to do that. And she went bananas, and she set off alarm bells, and that forced us to tape the show instead of do it live. And the NBC lawyers were down my neck, and they told me I couldn't. I could only describe Alan Myers. I couldn't say his name, and uh, and I was under so much pressure, and had so many different people pulling at me. Franco Harris was concerned. I might say that Jerry was innocent. Jim Clemente, the Fraternal family sex crimes expert, or I didn't know at the time, is a total, complete, 100% fraud. He was pleading with me not to use Alan Meyer's name on CNN that night when I was on with Piers Morgan, literally calling me in the limo ride over to the show. I stupidly agreed. This was so stupid in retrospect. I mean, my gut was telling me Jim Clemente was a fraud, and I I did not believe my own instincts. And so I, I was a too nice a guy. That's the greatest irony about my whole interaction, this thing. My biggest mistakes have been being too nice and not following my own instincts. So if I, if I had to do it over again, I would have been an asshole and I would have followed my instincts because my instincts have been dead on since pretty much the very beginning of this whole fiasco. Finally, what has this done to your career and what's next? <laughs> it's destroyed my life, destroyed my career, destroyed my golf game, destroyed my faith in people, destroyed my faith in religion and it's it negatively impacted my ability to even function with people. I mean I, I had a very dim view of people to begin with. and then now I, I hate humanity. I literally hate humanity because of all this. So there's no place for me to go. I mean I, I'm I'll you know probably just quit here pretty soon. I don't know. I mean I still write the columns for mediate. Uh, like 12 times a month. I don't know how much longer that'll go on for, but um, but this has been the biggest mistake of my life. Greatest work I've ever done. Biggest mistake in my life, which pretty much sums up not only this whole case, but this whole upside down world in which we now live. All right, th- those are all the questions. If you find if you have another question, I'm always answer ha- happy to answer them. So you can uh, email me uh, through framingpaterno.com, talk to zig at aol.com. Uh, via Twitter, Facebook, what have you. All I ever ask, as always, is, well, three things. One, an open mind on all this. Two, share the podcast via Twitter, Facebook, or other social media, or just word of mouth. And three, if uh, you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, do yourself a favor and pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website on this case is framingpaterno.com.
0: Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should. Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheik's. S H E E X. Sheik's. Try Sheik's for 30 nights risk free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.